0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, the second chapter, and the thirteenth verse. The thirteenth verse in the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. We began considering this great and vital statement last Sunday morning, and at once uh, we are reminded by the fact that it's a statement that of course must be taken with the previous verse, which reads that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God, In the world, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. In other words, the Apostle here gives us the positive that uh, contrasts with the negative of that previous verse, and we remind ourselves again that his object is once more to show us the greatness of our salvation in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's his object, that's what he is writing about. He wants to display to these Ephesians, for their edification and for their comfort, the exceeding greatness of the power of God toward them. The trouble with Christian people always is that we fail to realize the greatness of this salvation. That is why these New Testament epistles were written, they are written to Christians. But they were necessary because these people like ourselves, being still in the flesh and being subject to the temptations and the trials that are inevitable in a world of sin, were constantly looking at themselves apart from Christ and failing to realize what exactly was true of them in Christ Jesus. And the apostles set out to show that to them. And this is the only way whereby we ever can understand the greatness of this salvation. And as we realize it, it will lead to joy and rejoicing, to praise and to thanksgiving. It will lead to an assurance and a confidence in Christ which nothing can shake. But in order to come to that, we've got to realize these two extremes. We've got to see what we were sometimes. We've got to realize what is now true of us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Very well. Here is the positive side of this great measurement of the love and the power of God toward us in Christ. I suggested that there are three things here. The apostle, first of all, emphasizes the contrast between what we were and what we are. The difference between the non-Christian and the Christian. What an absolute difference it is. But now, Sometimes, now, there are no shades of difference. One is either a non-Christian or a Christian. And the two things are quite separate. That was the first thing we dealt with. The second thing we dealt with was uh, to emphasize what we now are. We are made nigh. And we considered last Sunday morning some of the glorious things that are included in that. Drawing nigh unto God. We have the privilege of entering into the presence of God, as the author of the epistle to the Hebrews puts it, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest, which means the holiest of all, the presence of God. That's That's what it means, and all the things that come out of that, our consciousness of sonship, the spirit within us which cries, Abba, Father, and so on. Very well, we've looked at all that. The third thing I said was this. How all this comes to pass. How this great change takes place. What it is that entitles us to say, sometimes and now. What it is that brings us nigh unto God. Now the apostle deals with it at the end of the verse. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Here it is once more. Here is the statement which will always be found everywhere in the New Testament in in this connection. We've already seen it. The Apostle has already told us in the first chapter, in the seventh verse, in whom in Christ, in other words, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And he goes on repeating it. And he will go on repeating it. The remainder of this chapter, in a sense, is but an elaboration and an exposition of this thirteenth verse. He brings it all out in detail, and he keeps on repeating his phrases. It's the whole story of the New Testament. It is the very heart of the Christian message and of the Christian faith. How is it that we are made nigh unto God? The answer is, the only answer is, in Christ Jesus, and especially in or by his blood. Now, here I say is the very foundation of the Christian faith. And if we are not clear about this, well, we can't be right anyway. Let the critics say what they will. This is surely the New Testament message. It is in Christ Jesus, and it is by his blood. Our gospel is a gospel of blood. Blood is the foundation. Without it, there is nothing. Therefore, we must go into this and emphasize the things which the apostle is so concerned to emphasize in writing thus to the Ephesians. We therefore start with our negative. How do we draw near unto God? What right have I to seek God's face and to come near unto God? How do I do it? Well, first and foremost, it is not because I am what I am. It is not because of any goodness that is in me. My right to go to God is not based upon the fact that uh, I live a good life and try to to live a good life, that I am moral. That's no reason for coming near unto God. That isn't the thing that brings me nigh unto God. There are many moral people in the world who are not even interested in God. And even if they were interested in God, their morality alone is never sufficient. Now, we needn't stay with that. The apostle has already been emphasizing it in the previous previous words, previous verses. Not of works, not of works. So that if in any sense we are relying upon ourselves and our goodness and our morality, we are denying the gospel. There is no greater denial of the Christian faith, the Christian message, than to think that because you are a good person, you have a right to go to God in prayer. That is an an utter, absolute denial of it all. If that were true, Christ need never have come into the world at all, still less need he have died upon the cross on Calvary's hill. And yet I think you'll all agree that it's essential to emphasize this. There are large numbers of people still who go to the presence of God exactly as the Pharisee went in our Lord's picture of the Pharisee and the publican who went up into the temple to pray. And the Pharisee went right to the front and he stood up and he said, I thank thee, O God, that I am not as other men are, and especially like this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give a tenth of my goods to the poor. I'm coming because I'm such a good man. And I'm coming to thank you that I am so good. That man, says our Lord, does not go down to his house justified." He is not heard by God. He is not nigh unto God. There is a sense in which there is no one that is further from God than the man who thinks that his goodness is of the slightest value in the presence of that burning fire, that consuming fire, the holiness of God. It isn't that. Secondly, it is not because of uh, good deeds that we do to others. There are many who take up that position. They say, well, of course, I admit that I'm not perfect, but after all, I'm trying to make up for that. I'm trying to atone for that by doing good. I'm engaged in philanthropic activities. I try to help others. I go out of my way to do that. Now, I think you'll agree once more that here again is a large group of people. They admit that they've nothing of whereof to boast. They're honest enough to know that there are hideous, foul, vile things within them. Ah, yes, they say, but surely if one tries to compensate for that and make atonement for that by doing good, that will admit us into the presence of God. You are idealists. You are public benefactors. The people who talk about reverence for life and for doing good, they sometimes will make great sacrifices. They may give up a great profession and and go into something else and do good. They may sacrifice home comforts and go to the distant parts of the world. They certainly are doing great good. Yes, but if they think that it's the doing of that good that admits them to God, they are denying the gospel, exactly as the first group did. So we must be clear that it isn't that. But I would go even further. We do not even draw nigh unto God because we are religious. And because we are interested in worship. And because we are interested in God. Even that isn't enough. Here is something which is better than the other two. The other two are looking at self only. Here is a person who really, as it were, is concerned about religion and about relationships to God. He desires to worship God. But if he relies alone upon that desire for worship or upon his religious practices, it will avail him nothing. And yet I think again you agree that there are large numbers of people who are in this group. They attend services. They're careful about forms. They may sacrifice in order to do this. They may rise up at a very early hour in the morning and they think that there is some peculiar merit in that and they will do this and that. They will observe the forms and follow the ritual, but they rely upon that, upon the way of approach. But still I say that even that is a denial of this Christian message. The Apostle Paul was a highly religious man before his conversion. Martin Luther was a highly religious man before his conversion. John Wesley was a highly religious man before his conversion. You can be fasting and sweating and praying and that may be the greatest obstacle to coming nigh unto God. That's not the way. And lastly, under this heading of negatives, I would indicate that the way to draw nigh unto God is not the way of mysticism. Now, this again, of necessity, must be emphasized, because mysticism in various forms is always with us. Not in its classical form, as it was taught and practiced perhaps in the Middle Ages, and in the later Middle Ages especially, by uh, some of the great uh, masters of the so-called mystical life, and as it is still practiced by many who follow that teaching in the Roman Catholic Church and in various other branches of the Christian Church. But mysticism, in much more subtle forms, uh, ever tends to be with us. Now, the whole basis of mysticism is this, that rarely the way to draw nigh unto God is to look into yourself. Now, the mystic would probably agree with everything that I've said so far under my negatives. He would say, no, no, it's no use relying on your goodness. It's no use relying on your benefactions and upon your philanthropy. It's no use relying upon your religious forms and ceremonial or upon some external priesthood. If you want to know God, says the mystic, if you want to draw nigh unto God, you must turn into yourself and look into yourself. You must sink into yourself. God, says the mystic, is within you. So you shut yourself off from all externals and external activities, and you, as it were, sink into God. And that, they say, is the way of drawing near unto God. The way of resignation, the way of uh, contemplation, the way of rest, the way of letting go, as it were, and just sinking into the ground of existence, sinking into God. Or perhaps we can characterize it like this. The essence of that teaching is that one really can approach God and find God and draw nigh unto God directly without anything else at all. Now, this takes certain popular forms. There are people, for instance, who teach, teach it like this. They say, if you are in trouble about your life, if things are not going well with you, if you don't quite know what to do with yourself or in your circumstances, now they say the thing is quite simple. All you've got to do is to start listening to God. Just where you are and as you are. You need do nothing else. They say, you just sit down and relax and begin to listen to God. You've only got to let go, as it were, and thus in this relaxed state, just just wait upon God and God will speak to you. You can arrive at him directly. Ah, oh, but says someone, where does Christ come in? Oh, they say, that's something that follows later. The first thing you've got to do is to get to God and to get contact with God, and later you will be taught how to come to Christ. Now, I think you're familiar with that sort of teaching. It is taught specifically, without the mentioning of the name of Christ at all, that any man, whenever he desires to do so, can draw nigh unto God can immediately get into contact with God. So they bring people to God first, and then they try to say, some of them, that they then take them on to Christ. But surely it's obvious that this is an utter denial of what the apostle teaches here. We are made nigh, how? In Christ Jesus. By the blood of Christ. So these negatives, I say, are all important. How can I go into the presence of God? Well, one thing is clear. I cannot do it in and of myself in any of the ways I've indicated. Whether I'm active or passive, whether I'm highly religious or not, whatever I do, I can never bring myself into the presence of God. Well, no, says the apostle, the truth about you is this. that now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh. It's something that's done to you. You've been made nigh, brought nigh. It isn't your activity. It is another's activity. It is something that has been done to you and that has happened to you. It is an action of God which brings you into his own presence. Now, it's because that is true, of course, that this... uh, is a gospel. That's why it is a gospel. That's why it's good news. That is the whole glory of this gospel, that we who were of our offer made night. The uh, New Testament is never tired of emphasizing this. Listen to the Apostle Paul, this same man putting it in writing to the Corinthians. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. It isn't the world that reconciles itself unto God. That's not the message. That's the Old Testament, if you like, in a sense, the world trying to do that. God said to them, here's my law, you keep that and you'll put yourselves right. The men that keepeth the law shall be justified. And they tried and they failed. Very well, what's the new message? The new message is this, that whereas men had failed completely, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Or take the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it astounding that having opened Bibles in front of us, that we can still go on trying to discover God and drawing nigh to him in the ways I've been indicating. When the Son of God himself said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now you would have thought that was enough once and forever. It's the most categorical statement imaginable. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And yet here I'm in saying I'm going in in the, in the strength of my own goodness. I'm going to sit down and relax, and I'll find God speaking to me, and Christ isn't even mentioned, doesn't come in at all. And this passes as Christianity. I read a statement in a religious paper by the other day, the other day, by a principal of a college to train men to preach the gospel, which advocates the very thing I'm referring to. That men can get into the presence of God and receive God's guidance simply by waiting upon him and starting to listen to him without Christ? It's almost incredible, but it's true. Thus the gospel of Christ is denied, and often denied in the very house of Christ, in the very house of God. Is it surprising That Christendom is as it is, that our churches are as they are, that we're not experiencing the presence of God and mighty revival and reawakening. We are insulting the Son by forgetting Him and by feeling that He's not necessary. We are denying the specific statements of the Apostles and of the Son of God Himself. There is no way of drawing nigh unto God except in and through the Son of God, our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is one God and one mediator only between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, by his blood. Very well. The teaching, therefore, is this, isn't it? No man is nigh unto God unless he is in Christ. Oh, the apostle has already been expounding that. We've seen it at great length in the first verses of this chapter. Uh, You remember how he puts it? While we were yet dead, he hath quickened us together with Christ, and hath raised us up together with him, and caused us to sit with him in the heavenly places. In Christ, it's all in Christ. And let's be clear about this. If I am not in Christ, I've never been near God. The only way that I can ever be made nigh unto God is that I am in Christ, and in him I am near God, made nigh to God. But especially, I say, by his blood. That's the thing the apostle emphasizes. He isn't content with just leaving it by saying, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh. Oh no. He must add, by the blood of Christ. And, my dear friends, this is absolutely essential. I know that this theology of blood is hateful to many people today. People not only dislike it, they hate it. They abominate it, this blood, this, this cheapness. I think I quoted you before, thousand two years or so ago, I was called in to help in a discussion that was taking place between a businessman who had become a Christian and a professional man who was not a Christian. And they were having a great discussion, and I went into the discussion, and this is what I heard the professional man saying as he stated the case. He said, of course, I have great respect for my friend here. He said, he's a good man. I can see what's happened to him, and that's all right, and he does a lot of good, and I agree with it. But you know, he said, what I can't stand is this blood-and-thunder business that he keeps on talking about. The blood of Christ. People have referred to it as this butchery. This wallowing in blood. Oh yes they say let's live a good life. Let's worship God. But must you drag in this blood perpetually? It seems a scandal to them. It seems something hateful. And yet my friends the apostle goes out of his way to bring it in. It is by the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ means the death of Christ. In other words, we are made nigh in Christ Jesus, not by his teaching. He did teach. He taught men how to live, take the Sermon on the Mount. But if he'd left it at that, I should be as far away from God this morning as a man could ever be. By the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and is telling me how to live, he does not bring me near to God. Yea, let me say it again, there he drives me farther away. You see, the Pharisees thought that their interpretation of the law was such that they really were drawing near unto God by keeping the law. But when Christ expounded what the law meant, they began to see that they were very far from God. When you realize that God is as interested in a desire as in a deed, in a motive as in an action, that the look is as bad as the act in God's sight, well then you realize that Christ's teaching condemns you completely. He doesn't bring me to God by teaching me how to live. Still less does he bring me to God by giving me an example how to live. Whatever I may feel about myself when I look at him, I want to hide myself in shame. The lives of his servants are more than enough to make me feel how poor my life is. When I read the lives of the saints, Oh, I realize how poor and shoddy my best efforts are. But when I look at the Son of God, people talk about the imitation of Christ. And they're going to follow Christ. They've never realized what they're saying. Christ utterly condemns us. Who can follow him? No one can follow him left to himself. It's impossible. It's too exalted. It isn't his example that brings me nigh. Neither... Does he bring me nigh simply by telling me that God is love? Now this, I suppose, is the most popular misunderstanding of the gospel today. Ah, they say, what Jesus Christ does is this, and this is how he brings us to God. He tells us that God is love. All we really need is to be assured that God is love. They say that's the only thing men and women really need. They've got a wrong idea of God. If they only knew that God is a God of love, they'd rush into his presence and they'd spend the rest of their time there. What a fatal underestimate of sin and of the effects of the fall. Would men be more interested in God if they knew that he's a God of love? Of course they wouldn't. they trade on it. They'd say, ah, well, if God is a God of love, I can do what I like. The love of God will forgive me. And that's the very thing they're doing. So he doesn't bring us nigh to God simply by telling us that God is a God of love and that he's ready to forgive. The Old Testament had already told us that. As a father, pitieth his children, and so on. The Old Testament is full of the love of God. Did that succeed? Of course it didn't. It never has. It never will. No, no, that's not the way. There is only one way whereby even Christ can bring me nigh to God. And that is by his blood. By his death, by his broken body, by his shed blood. That's why he instituted the Lord's Supper. The broken bread, the, the, the poured out wine. Why? A perpetual reminder that that's the only way to God. And it's there we see the wondrous foreknowledge of God in Christ. Knowing how ready men are to fall into error and into heresy. He established, he commanded, he ordained the Lord's Supper, bread, wine, broken bread, poured out wine. Why? That it might perpetually preach the fact that that's the only way into the presence of God. The veil is his own body. It must be rent. The death of Christ. It is only, I say, then by the death of Christ, by the blood of Christ, That one can be made nigh unto God. How does this do it? How does it work, says someone? Well, there are two main ideas here. I just put them before you briefly. The first is what is commonly called expiation. The blood of Christ makes expiation for our sins. Now, the whole idea here is this. You remember that momentous statement made by John the Baptist at the very beginning of our Lord's ministry. Behold, he said, "Look at him, behold, the lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the whole world." There it is for you in a single phrase. The Lord Jesus Christ, what is he? He's the lamb, the paschal lamb. The lamb of sacrifice. He's the one who sums up all the Old Testament, ceremonial and ritual. The lamb of God, the lamb that God has provided, not the lambs that men have provided. But why is a lamb necessary? Why should there be a sacrifice? The answer is this, the wages of sin is death. God uh, decreed that, God pronounced that, that men sinning should die. And the wages of sin therefore is death. And God has likewise stated and decreed that only a sacrificial and atoning death can cover this. So that we read, without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. God's punishment for sin is death. And whether we like it or not, it's effect. Ignorance of the law is no excuse in law. That you don't agree with the law makes not the slightest difference when you're arraigned in the court. There it is. And this is God's law. The wages of sin is death. And we're all sinners. And the punishment of sin must be meted out. Otherwise God is no longer just. And God is no longer righteous and holy. Why did Christ therefore come into the world? He came, says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, to taste death for every man. Why has he come? Why, says Peter, he's come for this reason. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. That's why he came. What's happening on the cross? Well, says Paul to the, to the Corinthians in the second epistle, chapter 5, verse 21, God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. That's the method which I can put like this, therefore. God takes my trespasses. He took my trespasses, I should say. And he imputed them to Jesus Christ. He put them on him. He took my debt and put it on him. He demanded the penalty from him and it was paid. That's God's way of salvation in Christ. And by the death of Christ, why did Christ die? The answer is that God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is by his stripes we are healed. God smote him in order that I might not be smitten. That's why he died. That's why his blood was shed. This is the only way to atone for sin. It would never have happened otherwise. You remember Peter pulling out his sword to go and defend our Lord. Put it back, Peter, said Christ. Don't you know that I could commend twelve legions of angels if I desired? And I could be wafted to heaven without suffering at all? But I've come in order to suffer. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. He could have escaped it all. But then if he'd escaped it all, you and I would die in our sins. He had to die. It's God's way of forgiveness. By his blood. Why? You see now why the apostle must bring it in? Without this there is no forgiveness. I cannot draw nigh unto God. Expiation is absolutely essential. Before I can draw nigh unto God... Something's got to be done about my sins, and I can do nothing about them. They're condemned by the law of God, and that law must be satisfied, and Christ has satisfied it. He lived the law perfectly. He bore my punishment meted out by the law. The obstacle of the law of God has been removed. At any rate, the way is now open. The barrier of my sin has been taken out of the way. That's what's meant by expiation. But the blood of Christ does a second thing. And this is vitally important in our context. You notice that Paul said that what was true of us was this that we were aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, the covenant. God's made a covenant with men. We looked at it last Sunday. We saw the new covenant. May I remind you that if you want to read about it again, read the 8th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews and there you will have the full terms of the new covenant. I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. They shall no longer teach every man his neighbor saying, know thy God for all shall know me from the least unto the greatest. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. I will write my laws in their minds and inscribe them in their hearts. That's the new covenant. But these people were strangers to all that. But now they've been made nigh by the blood of Christ. How does it work? Well, it works like this. Every covenant was always ratified and sealed by blood. You read your Old Testament, you'll find it everywhere. When God made a covenant with men, it was always ratified and sealed by blood. An animal was killed, the blood was taken, and sprinkled on the document. Indeed, you will find that the temple was sanctified and consecrated in the same way. The vessels of the temperament, the books, The book of the law, you will find that the priests were set apart by blood being sprinkled upon them. You will find that when a leper was cleansed, blood was placed upon him. That's God's way. That's the way it's settled and sealed. Every covenant of God is always ratified and sealed by means of the sprinkling of blood. And my friends. The new covenant has been ratified in the same way, but this time by the blood of Jesus Christ. No longer the blood of bulls and of goats or the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean. It's the blood of Christ. He's ratified the new covenant. Listen to the terms used, especially in the epistle to the Hebrews. We read that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Did you notice it as we read that twelfth chapter? Did you notice in the thirteenth chapter that we read about the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, the blood of the everlasting covenant. Did you notice how the Lord Jesus Christ, when he instituted the Last Supper, took the cup, when he had supped and said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, the new covenant in my blood? Did you notice, have you noticed that when Paul reminds the Corinthians of that, in 1 Corinthians, Chapter 11, which we read at the communion table, in the same manner after he had supped, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Those are the terms. The covenant is ratified by blood. In other words, the new covenant between God and men would not be sure to us unless Christ's blood had been sprinkled upon it. That's the seal, if you like, that guarantees it. The bearing of our sins away was not enough. Before I can draw nigh unto God and be made nigh unto God, I must be a participator in the new covenant. And Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. It is he that stands between God and men. He is the day's men that brings us together. He's the one that stretches out a hand to God and a hand to us. He's God. He's men. Yes, he's the complete mediator. And it is therefore by means of the blood of the covenant that I can draw near God, How does it work? Well, it works like this. Someone may say, yes, I've listened to all you've said. But you know, says this person, I feel I'm such a terrible sinner, so that when I begin to pray, I'm troubled about that. How can I draw near unto God? The answer is, my friend, you must believe this teaching. You must realize what it says and you must come nigh with boldness unto God by the blood of Jesus. How do you do it? Well, you do it like this. The first thing you've got to do is to listen to what the blood of Christ says. Did that ever occur to you? That the blood of Christ speaks? Well, did you follow the reading at the beginning in Hebrews chapter 12? Do you remember that we are told we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to Mount Zion and so on, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and, last of all, to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Blood speaks. The blood of Abel spoke. What did it say? Well, listen to Genesis 4.10. God addressed Cain after he'd murdered Abel and said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. The spilt blood of Abel was crying out to God for vengeance. That's how the blood of Abel speaks. It speaks of judgment. It speaks of vengeance. It speaks of cursing. The curse that descended upon Cain. But the blood of Jesus speaketh better things than that of Abel. What does it speak? It speaks of pardon. It speaks of expiation. It speaks of peace with God. It's shouting out. It's crying out unto you. I have died. You can live. The punishment has been born. You are free. Have you listened to the blood of Jesus? It's speaking. And speaking better things than the blood of Abel. Listen to the blood of Christ. As it tells you that he's tasted death for you and borne your punishment, that the law of God is satisfied and that the way into the presence of God is open. Or listen to it in the second way. Listen to this in Hebrews 9.14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without spot to God, a purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Or listen to Hebrews 10:22. Let us draw nigh unto God with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's it mean? It means this. That when you get down on your knees before God and your conscience accuses you and reminds you of what you are and what you've done and resurrects your sins, turn upon it and say, I'm sprinkled with the blood of Christ. You can't condemn me. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Answer it. Have your conscience sprinkled with the blood of Christ and it will be cleansed from all your dead works. He does it like that. Ah, that's all right, you say. I see now how I can go into the presence of God because I see that my sins have been dealt with. I am therefore in the presence of God. Ah, but wait. What if I should fall into sin again? What if I should do something wrong? Well, here's your answer in the first epistle of John, in the first chapter and the seventh verse. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. You will sin, but the blood of Christ will still cleanse you from your sin. You've been brought nigh to God. You're walking with him in fellowship. But you fall into sin. You say, that's finished. That's the end. I've sinned against the light. No, no. Go back. The blood of Christ is still able. It will cleanse you from all sin and from all defilement. And you can continue walking with God and enjoying your fellowship with him. You who sometimes were far off have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. My dear friend, I want to ask you a question. Have you been made nigh? Well, I can tell you very simply how to know whether you have or not. If you are still talking about being good enough, you have not been made nigh. If you are still relying on yourself in any shape or form, you are still afar off. But listen to this. If you are still talking of not being good enough, you also have not been made nigh. Because as long as you keep on talking of not being good enough, what you really are saying is that you think you can make yourself good enough, and you never will. You'll never be better than you are now. Never. You can live the rest of your life. If you lived a thousand years, you'd be no better. You'd never be good enough to come into the presence of God. So if you're still saying, Ah, that's wonderful, but I'm not good enough. I'm a sinner. That means you're not made nigh. The one who is made nigh is one who says this. I know that I'm a sinner. I know the sins of the past. I know I've still got a sinful nature. But though I know that, I know that I am in the presence of God because I am in Christ. I have listened to the speech of the blood of Christ And it has spoken to me of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of expiation, of God being satisfied, of God being just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. The blood is sprinkled on my conscience. Let hell try to denounce me. I know that God accepts me. I am relying only utterly, entirely upon Jesus Christ and him crucified. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. In his merits and in his merits alone, I know that I have access to God and that God receives me, that I have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. Brethren, let us have boldness, therefore, to enter into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus but still with reverence and godly fear, boldness, confidence, and yet still knowing that our God is a consuming fire, not glibly, not lightly, not loosely, not flippantly, not boisterously, not carnally, with reverence and godly fear, Yet knowing, yet certain, yet sure, that I enter in by the blood of Jesus. Amen.